today we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 1, eventually. Before we get to the first verse of Matthew, let's flip all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the book of Genesis. When God created the heavens and the earth and created Adam and Eve, placing them in a garden where they were told they could eat anything in the garden except specific fruit. Here they were introduced to the serpent who tempted them to rebel against God. And as a consequence of their rebellion, they were removed from the garden and from the presence of God. But God made a promise that one day a descendant of theirs would be born who would crush the head of the snake, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. This snake-crushing descendant would be the Messiah, the Christ. Now fast forward through a handful of chapters about fallen humanity's numerical growth and their spiraling spiritual rebellion until Genesis chapter 12. Here, God makes a promise to a man named Abraham that through his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, a son of Abraham. Fast forward again through the growing descendants of Abraham, through Israel's captivity in Egypt, through God revealing his covenant name, through the plagues and God flexing his muscles as the one true God, through the exodus out of Egypt and then utilizing a man named Moses to reveal God's law to the people. Through 400 years in the wilderness, the conquest of the promised land, and the institution of Israel's first king, until you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where a shepherd turned Israel's second king, King David, is given a promise that one day God would raise up a descendant of David who would come and establish the throne of his kingdom forever, a son of David. As the Israelites anticipate the fulfillment of this promise from God, David's direct son, Solomon, takes the throne of the united Israelite kingdom and chases after worldly pleasures. About five minutes after Solomon passes away, the united kingdom becomes the divided kingdom, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The southern kingdom has Jerusalem and continues to be ruled by descendants from the line of David. Kings from both kingdoms continually fall short. Most are actually described in the Bible as having done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eventually, Assyria swoops in and destroys the northern kingdom. Not long after that, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom, taking the Israelites back to Babylon as captives. This deportation starts the Babylonian captivity, but it is important to note that God spares the descendants of David from death, keeping the promised line alive. God then orchestrates events to allow the Israelites to return to the promised land and rebuild both the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. But the Old Testament ends with the Israelites still struggling to follow the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It seemed the people were just going through the motions of worship, half-heartedly checking the religious boxes or outright trying to manipulate the system. It created an environment where they were not faithful to their covenant with God, questioned God's true character, didn't see the glory of God, and ultimately led to an absence of the word of God. Just silence. 400 years of silence, until you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where Matthew pens a very authoritative sentence. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right off, the author is basically saying, introducing Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Even the phrase, book of the genealogy, has a purpose. In Greek, it is Biblos Genesis, and it is only used twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was called the Septuagint. 
It's found in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 when it says, This is the history of the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. And it's used again in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in God's likeness. The Biblos Genesis of creation and the Biblos Genesis of man leading to the Biblos Genesis of Jesus Christ, who will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, who is the new and greater Adam, and through whom we are made new creations. Then, in verses 2 through 17, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to reveal a selective genealogy that follows the history of the Israelites. This list is more than a collection of random ancient names. There are men and women, kings and scandals, famous names and complete unknowns, Israelites and Gentiles. It displays the humanity of Jesus' family tree and the reality of his messianic lineage. But Matthew doesn't stop there. He closes out chapter 1, revealing the divinity of Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is, being interpreted, God with us. This virgin-born child would save the people from their sins and be God present with them. In chapter 1, Matthew chooses to introduce the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ, through a lineage of men and a miracle from God. Jesus, the God-man, fully human, fully divine. Welcome to the book of Matthew. Welcome back. I'm Brian, and hopefully that gave you a good introduction to Matthew chapter 1, a chapter rich in Old Testament scripture, prophetic fulfillment, and dots that are meant to be connected. Hopefully you're reading along with us and our reading plan, but if you're not, then I recommend giving us a follow on Facebook, where I'll be posting each week's reading chapters. We'll swim a little deeper into the depths of each section of the chapter, but at a high level, Matthew chapter 1 covers Jesus' family tree and birth. J.I. Packer, through a quote in David Platt's commentary, says about Matthew chapter 1, that it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundness and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. We'll take this chapter section by section, so I'll start by looking at the first 17 verses more closely. The genealogy. Jesus is described as a son of Abraham and a son of David in verse 1. What should these titles tell us about Jesus? Way back in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that through one of his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In verses 2 and 3, God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. God then focuses this family, family lineage further in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when he announces to King David that when your days are fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who shall proceed out of your bowels, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. This promise to David is also underlined in Psalm 89, when God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever, and build up your throne to all generations. These names tell us that Jesus is the Christ, the one who will bless people from all nations, the one whose kingdom will be forever and who will, would somehow also be the Son of God. The genealogy itself is really interesting. There Are there names you recognize in it? Yeah, probably. We already talked about Abraham and David, but you might recognize names like Isaac, Jacob, Judah, or Solomon, who received significant attention throughout the Old Testament. There are probably a few names you don't know anything about, too. I wouldn't worry that much about it. Some of the names I don't know anything about. Names like Zadok, Eliud, and Eleazar, who are never given a backstory in Scripture. Jesus' lineage is a mix of big names and historical nobodies. Do you notice that the closer we get to the end of the list, the more unknown the people become? There might be a long list of royalty in Jesus' family tree, but he truly does come from a humble background if you look at those last few names. What surprises you most about the list? For a lot of people, including scholars, it's the inclusion of the five women. First off, in ancient times, because women had different legal rights, they were seldom used as witnesses or presented as the key players in your bloodline. Because of this, they were very seldom mentioned in genealogies. Matthew goes out of his way to include them, and his first century Jewish audience would have noticed that. Second, three of the five women were not of Israelite descent. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were not from Jewish lines. But here they are in the genealogy of the Jewish Messiah, who would bless all people of all ancestral lines. A lot of the women have questionable pasts or shady character issues, which, time out I want to point out, is also true of a lot of the men in this genealogy. But still, the children of Tamar were born out of incest, Rahab was a prostitute from the non-Israelite city of Jericho, Bathsheba became David's wife and baby daddy through a wicked and sinful plot. By the way, she isn't even mentioned by name. Instead, Matthew just kind of gives David a slap in the face when he mentions that Solomon was the son of David through the wife of Uriah, calling into memory that David slept with another man's wife and then had that man murdered to cover it up. Ruth was a Moabite woman, a people group known in the ancient world for their sexual immorality. Blumberg points out that the only factor that clearly are, applies to all four is that suspicions of illegitimacy surround their sexual activity and childbearing. This suspicion of illegitimacy fits perfectly with that which surrounded Mary, which Matthew immediately takes pain, pains to refute. We'll see Matthew articulate in the next section that there is no shadiness when it comes to Mary's pregnancy. Jesus is a legitimate child whose birth mother was Mary, whose legal father was Joseph, but whose actual father was God himself. The last thing I'll mention about the list is that it isn't complete. It's not a full list of names. Why is this? The reason has to do with symmetry and something called gematria. 
The reason Matthew is able to skip some names comes from a translation technicality. The Greek word that most of our Bibles translate to father of or begot also could simply mean a descendant of. So you notice the names of Matthew's partial genealogy might not match up to the more complete genealogy of Luke chapter 2. But it's just because Matthew is skipping some levels of descendants further down the list. It would be like me saying I'm a descendant of my great-grandfather. It doesn't mean that I'm not also a descendant of my dad. The symmetry of the genealogy Matthew presents focuses on three groups of 14 names. In ancient Hebrew, there is a system that assigns numbers to each Hebrew consonant. In this system, the three consonants that spell David are DVD, and those three letters add up to 14, 3, and 14. Matthew is using math nerdiness to further point to the Messiah as one from David's line, and one who would be the new and greater David. In the second half of chapter 1, we get the history behind Mary's pregnancy, Joseph's faith in the face of extraordinary circumstances, and Jesus' miraculous birth. Mary and Joseph are engaged, and then all of a sudden Mary shows up pregnant, and Joseph has questions and tough decisions. In our society today, just getting engaged and breaking off an engagement have no legal consequences. But in ancient Judaism, engagement had more legal standing and more concrete rules for breaking off an engagement. Deuteronomy 22 says that if there is a young lady who is a virgin pledged to be married to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. So, if Joseph cries foul and paints Mary as a willful adulteress, then he's probably sentencing her to death by stoning. But simply being pregnant didn't mean that it was wickedness on her part. A couple verses later in Deuteronomy, it addresses if Mary was an unwilling participant in the pregnancy. But if the man find that the lady who is pledged to be married in the field, and the men force her and lie with her, then the only man who lay with her shall die. But to the lady you shall do nothing. There is in the lady no sin worthy of death. In De Deuteronomy 24.1, a man can decide to divorce quietly, but must write a certificate of divorce and give it to her. So Joseph's options are public exposure, which would have created a major stir and possibly resulted in Mary's death, or quietly canceling the engagement by simply giving Mary a bill of divorce. Notice that without knowing the background yet, Joseph had already decided on the quieter option. Matthew Poole's commentary says that, A kind and equitable man always presumes the best, especially in the case where life is concerned. Of course, Joseph soon finds out that Jesus was a gift from God and not a result of sketchy behavior, and he doesn't end up divorcing Mary. In verses 18 and 20, who did the baby in Mary's belly come from? Scripture is very clear that the child in Mary's belly came from the Holy Spirit. This child was not born out of adultery, it came out of the divine. So Matthew establishes Jesus as fully man from the line of David, and as fully God, born of the Holy Spirit. But what has Jesus come to do? Matthew summarizes this in verse 21. 
this verse should affect how we process the rest of this book. It's the verse that foreshadows everything that is about to unfold over the next 27 chapters. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and announced that Mary would bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, the God-man's mission, was to fulfill God's plan to redeem his people, and everything in Jesus' ministry points toward the cross, that Jesus came with the purpose of saving sinful men. The culmination of Jesus' life, death, and death and resurrection was a path for our salvation, where through faith in him, I am resurrected from death to life with him and receive forgiveness for my past, present, and future sins. Meditating on this truth should be freeing, and I pray that it breathes life into your desire to follow Jesus more passionately. The last thing I'll touch on is verse 23, where Matthew quotes from the book of Isaiah. He spotlights a theme that bookends this gospel. Jesus' death doesn't mean God abandoning his people. Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Matthew's gospel begins and ends with the proclamation that God is and will always be with his people. No matter the circumstances or historical timeline, Jesus has opened that door and everyone who believes in him gets to experience God walking with them. It doesn't mean God will make everything easy in this life, but it means that through everything you experience, you can rest assured that God has not turned his back on you. This promise is how the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8 that in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the blog, I'll link to some references about the book of Matthew that I've found helpful. If you're interested in a book that covers the theology of Matthew from a higher level, I highly recommend A Theology of Matthew by Charles Corliss. He really paints Matthew from a vantage point of the entire biblical storyline, from creation to new creation. When it comes to commentaries, I usually like to provide two options. One that's more scholarly and one that's a little easier to read and more accessible if you're just starting to study scripture. The scholarly commentary I recommend is the Knack Commentary, the New American Commentary by Blumberg, and the lighter commentary is the Christ-Centered Exposition of Matthew by David Platt. I hope this episode has provided some context to the list of names we often read over a little too quickly. I pray it helps us focus on who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf. In the next episode, we'll cover chapter 2, a chapter that I fear is so familiar to us from children's plays that we risk skimming over the actual story sometimes. If you're not already, please like us on Facebook. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.